This is an ABC podcast. And hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to God Forbid. You know the saying, you always hurt the ones you love. It means when things are wrong and messed up in our lives, those closest to us, friends and family, take the brunt of it. So what happens when things are wrong and messed up in a community or a country as a whole? What happens when you hurt the ones you love because you're normally united by religion or politics or national identity, but a split makes you fall out of love? Well, the answer is sectarianism. Two parts of the one against each other instead of together. And once it's unleashed, it can destroy everything in its path. Just look at the Syrian civil war as proof. Sectarianism has stained Australia too, Protestant versus Catholic. But in this respect, we are the lucky country because we've healed that wound. How and the lessons that come from it remain relevant. We'll look at that plus so much more with a triple header, God forbid, panel from three very different walks of life. Hugh Myers is one of Australia's most knowledgeable bibliophile antiquarians. That is, rare old books. He's a collector himself, so he's got the bug. He's worked and researched for the finest auction houses, and now he's at the Australian Catholic University where Vice-Chancellor Greg Craven has given him a near-open checkbook to find and buy even more books to add to their rare book library, some of which are one of a kind, therefore shedding unique light on our own sectarian history. Hugh Myers, welcome to God Forbid. Hello, James. Have I described that correctly? How could you say no to the vice chancellor? Was it like getting uh, a boy getting money in the lolly shop? Uh, it was a very attractive invitation, and I had worked for most of my life for antiquarian book dealers, people who specialise in selling old books and manuscripts. And during that time, I had come to know Professor Craven, and he offered me the opportunity, which was very attractive indeed. That brings us to our next guest, also with us, Dr Raihan Ismail, a senior lecturer at the Australian National University Centre for Arab and Islamic Studies. She's an expert on the intertwining nature of religion and politics in the Middle East. She's presented at Harvard and beyond, the author of Saudi Clerics and Shia Islam. Uh, how's your, your next Oxford University Press book, Rethinking Salafism, going, um, Raihan? Out soon? Welcome back to God Forbid. Thank you for having me, James. Um, yes, that book is uh, coming out in October, so I'm, you know, finally relieved that the book is um, has been finalised. And uh, why is it in religion and politics that the internal factional denominational disputes so often seem the most bitter? It's about identity. Um, it's about what you connect with. It's upbringing as well. The fact that you believe that your religion is the correct religion, is most authentic, um, can actually lead to divide. And that's definitely the case with the Sunnishia divide that lasted for a very long time and it still continues to plague um, you know, the Middle East and also other parts of the Muslim world. But there are other factors as well that we have to take into consideration, including um authoritarianism, 
um, lack of resources, lack of opportunities, corruption, um, conflict and other factors as well. Yes. Our third and final panellist is, well, she's either one of our most or least distinguished, depending on your point of view. I know she'll take that with the goodwill intended. You see, the Honourable Dr Meredith Bergman is former president of the New South Wales Legislative Council, Australia's oldest parliament, one of the world's oldest parliaments. She and her two sisters were the first to all receive doctorates. Uh, she's a former academic, the first female president of the Academics Union, but sadly she's also an incorrigible recidivist criminal who's been jailed uh, 20 times. She's been arrested. Uh, if you have a copy of her ASIO file, it's thick enough to hold up any loose window you may have around the house. Typically it's for stuff like running onto the SCG to ruin apartheid springbok tours or stop Vietnam wars or things like that. Meredith Bergman, welcome b back to God Forbid. Thank you, James. I hope that was an okay introduction. You've just written with Nadia Wheatley, which is why I did it that way, Radicals Remembering the 60s, and you've collated all these uh, radicals and revolutionaries, uh, um, chapters from them. Um, is it true to say we couldn't have had the radical divided 60s without the divided sectarian conformist 50s? Ah, that's a very interesting question. And, of course, it, it's not an uh, edited book. We, Nadia and I actually wrote it. We had conversations with 20 sort of well-known Australians who were, were radicalised in the 60s, and so we were interested in that process. And what became really clear was that they all talked about the Catholic-Protestant divide. Uh, for some it was very important, mostly the Catholics, and for others, of course, it was just mentioned along the way. But it just became really interesting for us that that was the actual d divide that, that was talked about. And, of course, it wasn't about liturgical differences. They wouldn't have known. They wouldn't have had a clue what the difference was between them and the Catholic down the road. Um, it was about class. It was about tribe. We all know about the division in the public service, you know, the police. If you wanted to be a police person, you really had to be Catholic and if you were in Newcastle, you had to be Protestant and there were geographic divisions and there were divisions within companies and especially within the public service as to what you were meant to be in order to fit in. A lot of it was about schools, the fact that in Australia, different to many other countries, uh, the Catholics go to one set of schools and the Protestants go to either independent schools or public schools. And as John Doyle says, that, that in Lith Lithgow, it used to be called Catholics versus publics. That was how he saw the divide. Hmm. The history and present of sectarianism with the Honourable Dr Meredith Bergman, Dr Rahan Ismail and Hugh Myers. This has been God Forbid. Well, today, Australia likes to think of itself as one of the world's great religiously free, tolerant, secular nations, and with very good reason. But as we've been discussing, we were not always harmonious. The divisions between Catholics and Protestants influenced all aspects of life, public, personal, marriages, schooling, social circles, politics, the legacy of which still impacts Australia. Historian Professor Stuart McIntyre and RN's Jonathan Green talked about the origins of this on ABC. Yes, it's, certain, it's something we brought with us or that the colonial settlers brought with them because they came from countries in which there was an established religion. 
and in which a level of conformity uh, was expected and um, there were limitations on alternative religious beliefs. And the complication, of course, was that the nationalities that came here, English, Scottish and Irish principally, all came with different denominational religions. But in early colonial Australia, it seems to me that we dealt with those relatively well. That is, by the 1830s, for instance, the colonial government was providing support to all religions. It's in the later 19th century, I think, that uh, divisions begin to harden. Most notably, I guess, in terms of politics around the time of the First World War, where we have a a very heated Mm. discussion about conscription. We have various Catholic leaders taking a hostile approach to that, which is construed by many as being unpatriotic. I suppose I would put the establishment of um, government schools in the 1870s as an important feature because this was a keenly debated issue and it was decided that those schools needed to avoid religion in the curriculum because it was a potential source of division. And the effect of that was that Catholics built their own schools Mm. and that all the Protestant denominations were lumped in together as Protestants. And then there were other related developments before the First World War. There was a papal decree, for instance, that Um, made it quite clear that mixed marriages would not be recognised by the Catholic Church. And probably you would talk about the way in which the churches began to develop um, community activities, which began to enclose people within denominational communities. I was struck, for instance, when I looked at John Button's memoirs. John Button, of course, was the son of a Presbyterian minister, but he not only attended that Presbyterian church but he um, played sport in Presbyterian teams. He recalled that his mother used to uh, shop in Geelong at Presbyterian shopkeepers. But probably up to the 60s, I guess, that yeah. that sense of religious identity was a key to sort of social organisation. Yeah. Yeah. And as you suggested, there was always, always the element of tension that the uh, Irish aspiration for home rule meant that there was a an element of suspicion of loyalty to the crown of the Irish Catholic community and that was undoubtedly strained during the First World War uh, when the Easter Rising occurred and was brutally repressed and in the split in the Labour Party here or the Labour government over the issue of conscription it did mean that um, many of those who left the Labour Party because they were pro-conscriptionists, the majority of them were Protestant and it strengthened the Catholic character of the Labour Party. And that's Professor Stuart McIntyre with uh, Jonathan Green for Sunday Extra. We'll put a link to their full conversation on the God Forbid website. Well, Hugh Myers, you're curating this collection of rare books from the 19th century, some one of a kind. Do they confirm what he says, Professor McIntyre? Absolutely. The Professor McIntyre made an interesting point that Scots, English and Irish all come to the fledgling settlement of New South Wales and Van Diemen's Land, bringing with them separate religious traditions. And so the binary divide of Protestant versus Catholic is not entirely accurate, given that the colonial administration was the Church of England, the majority of the Catholics came from Ireland in chains as convicts 
and the Scottish settlers were typically attending Congregationalist or Presbyterian churches built on a more austere model of Protestantism. So religion is very much tied to ethnicity within the United Kingdom. And Dr. Raihan Ismail, I wonder if this has any, uh, raises any um, comparisons with you, an expert on the Middle East, a kind of fake state set up the colony of New South Wales with these bizarre borders, like the Pikes Seco, you know, they make Lebanon out of nothing. And they wonder why it turns into an intersectional, sectarian, you know, confessional failed state. Do you see any similarities between the two? Absolutely, James. Um, particularly when considering the Sykes-Picot agreement um, that created these fake states, as you've mentioned earlier. The creation of these states failed to consider ethnic and tribal differences, sectarian differences, and in many ways divided the Middle East along ethno-sectarian lines as well. Iraq is an example of that. Lebanon is an example of that, as well as Syria. Yes. And Meredith Bergman, your life has been a struggle which has also involved divisions within the labour movement. When you joined the labour movement, the left and the right factions were fighting over should communists control unions? Should taxpayers pay for Catholic schools? Should abortion be legal? Should American bases be here? These were big questions. Yes, and I was very interested to hear uh, Stuart McIntyre talk about the beginning of this divide, I always tell people that when I arrived in um, Parliament in 1991, I walked into Labor caucus and of 56 uh, members of caucus, there were only seven of us that had a non-Catholic background. So the Labor Party uh, in Australia is well, at that stage was still very much a Catholic party and particularly in New South Wales because New South Wales is a very Catholic state. Um, it, the 2016 census uh, showed that 24% of New South Wales people said they were Catholic, whereas only 17% in South Australia. But just as importantly, New South Wales Labor didn't split. Oh, absolutely. Cardinal Gilroy told Catholics in New South Wales to stay in the party, whereas, of course, Mannix in Victoria told them to split. But already there were many more Catholics in New South Wales anyway, so so the Labor Party was always going to be more Catholicised, mainly because of the Irish Catholics who do arrive as convicts and, and are mainly uh, placed in New South Wales. But then you have post-war migration where uh, Catholics from... Italy, the Middle East, they they arrive and are mostly staying in um, the big cities, New South Wales and Victoria. So you have this very Catholic state, and and so the the right of the Labor Party in New South Wales is it, it is basically a, a Catholic right. There are very few Protestants in the right wing of the Labor Party, and so the big issues like abortion, anti-communism certainly attitude to the LGBTIQ community is very much a left-right fight within the party, but it's, it's also a Catholic versus non-Catholic fight. Mm. On our end, it is God forbid. We're with Dr Meredith Bergman, Dr Raihan Ismail and Hugh Myers. 
In Islam, the origins of the Sunni-Shia schism are almost 1,400 years old, yet today the reverberations remain. Multiple ongoing conflicts are related to this religious divide around the world. But when, where and why did the Sunni-Shia divide begin? Was it about how to understand God, about political power, about cultural practice? Leslie Hazelton is an award-winning journalist and author on the topic, speaking with RN's Annabel Quince. If there's one place in the world that could be said to be the cradle of the Shia-Sunni divide, it is Iraq. If there's one moment that it could be said to have begun, it was probably with the death of Muhammad. And what we're talking about here is a history that happened in the next half century, the next 48 years after his death. And the problem was Muhammad had no surviving son. It's said that he did have one son who died in infancy, Ibrahim. He had four daughters, and this being the Middle East and this being the 7th century, his successor as leader of this newly united peninsula of Arabia under the banner of Islam, this new religion, would be his khalifa, his successor, or in English, caliph. That would be his son, except there was no son. And this is the crux of the matter here, that he died without sons. What happened is that there was a division over who should be his successor. There was a group of people who were the followers of Ali. Ali was Muhammad's son-in-law and also his first cousin. He was his closest male relative. And these were called Shi'at Ali, the followers of Ali, and thus the name Shia. And they maintained that because Ali was so close to Muhammad, then he should be the first successor, the first caliph or khalifa. Then there were <laughs> those who said that no, it should be Abu Bakr, one of his fathers-in-law. I say one of his fathers-in-law because he married nine times in the end. That is, he was married to one woman monogamously for 24 years until her death, Khadija, but then in late life married mainly for diplomatic reasons. There were diplomatic marriages such as any leader at the time made. And by then, of course, he was a leader. So one of his fathers-in-law was Abu Bakr. And he was the one who, in fact, became the first caliph. And in response to the Shia and the idea of Shi'at Ali, the followers of Ali, those who supported Abu Bakr began to call themselves Sunnis because they followed the Sunnah, which is the example of Muhammad, as would be handed down over the generations, many generations later, in thousands and thousands of hadith or reports, some more reliable, some considerably less so, as to what he said and did. This is an incredibly powerful, emotive story that takes place over three generations. It involves Muhammad, it involves Ali, his son-in-law and first cousin, and it involves Ali's son, Hussein, who was martyred. And when I say martyred, I really mean it in Karbala, in Iraq. Leslie Hazelton with RN's Annabelle Quince for Rear Vision. We'll put a link to the full episode on our website. And to this day in Karbala in Iraq, if you go there for the annual Arba'in pilgrimage, one of the largest in the world, 25 million people each year, some walking 500 kilometres as far away as Basra, after Ashura to mourn the death of Hussein. Well, Dr. Rayan Ismail, in terms of numbers, that pilgrimage is bigger than the Hajj to Mecca, yes? Absolutely. And that is an issue with Sunni polemicists in particular, because they would argue that the Shia 
value pilgrimage to Karbala more than they value pilgrimage to Mecca. The issue as well is that there's a lot of misconceptions about the Shia faith. And for Sunni polemicists, they take advantage of people's lack of understanding of the Shia faith. And of course, for the Shia, they would argue that they remember Hussein's martyrdom. They believe in respecting Hussein's family and Ali's family, and that's why they visit Karbala. But obviously, they also visit Mecca as part of their religious devotion to Islam. But this is something that some Sunnis don't know. And there are groups that are trying to correct some of these misconceptions in the region. What kind of rituals do devout Shiites put themselves through during Ashura at Karbala? You see the videos of grown men crying over the death of Hussein 1,300 years ago with a depth of mourning as if it was an immediate family member who died yesterday. What do they do to themselves with whips and chains during the festival? Yes, self-flagellation, which is part of uh, some Shia practice. However, there are many interpretations when it comes to the permissibility of self-flagellation within the Shia tradition. That was introduced during the Safavid period because the Safavids really wanted to demonstrate that they are strictly Shia. They wanted to distinguish themselves from their rivals, the Ottomans, and therefore they instituted some of these practices to actually demonstrate that they are different from the Sunnis. And self-flagellation was one of those practices. However, to Today, some Shia scholars argue that it is not part of Shia traditions and other Shia scholars would argue that it is fine to remember the torture of Hussein and his family. He was beheaded. Oh, he was beheaded. Absolutely. It's uh, commemorating the death of Hussein and the massacre of Hussein. Um, Shia's sense of victimhood explains why the Shia believe that they have to suffer to remember what Hussein and his family endured. Um, so it is practiced in southern Lebanon, part of a massive celebration. And I remember a colleague of mine who told me that you know she went to the Ashura celebration and women were looking at the men and seeing who's actually brave um, to self-flagellate, but also using a dagger uh, to hurt themselves to demonstrate that they are grieving and they are suffering and you know, remembering what happened to Hussein's family. But what's interesting as well is that for Sunnis, this is something that is completely alien. You see images coming up, particularly in Iran, for instance, that reinforces the divide between Sunnis and Shia. And obviously, Shia clerics would have different explanations. There's always ways to justify why it is part of the tradition, uh, the diversity within Shia Islam. But it it can, you know, um, be used as a tool to actually reinforce the divide. And Meredith Bergman, your view on this? Um, I just want to get back to something that Rohan said about the, you know, the beheading of Hussein and things. And it reminds me of the Church of England which is also formed by beheadings, but that's of um, Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard when Henry VIII can't get a male heir and can't properly divorce his wives, so he beheads them and, you know, Anglicanism is born. So I think all religions start with a political agenda. 
I mean, really, if you look at Christianity, it was a very political agenda against the Romans and, the, and therefore splits in religious organisations are almost always political too. Yeah, well, I don't know if this question makes sense, Hugh Myers, but your books, your, 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 your rare books of the 19th century which capture Australia's history of Catholicism and Protestantism, are they religious books or political books? They're both, and this is where the overlap between abstract theology and dirty political tactics becomes particularly fascinating. It's, it's very much a, a matter of amplifying difference for whatever political agenda is on the table at any one time. And Protestant vitriol directed against the Catholic Church. There is a great fascination with women and their bodies, what is it that happens in confession? Why are nuns kept secluded and sequestered and so on and so forth? And one example of this is that during the 1870s and 1880s, nuns who had left convents in Europe and North America actually visited Australia and did lecture tours, usually organised by Orange Lodges in Sydney and Melbourne, they did public lecture tours on the horrors of convent life. And I've even got six books printed in Australia by local printers about these lecture tours. These are nuns who are saying I was kept like some horrid Fenian Catholic slave in a by a clutch of nun women. Yeah, there are there are all sorts of allegations about coercion and being tricked into convent life and so on and so forth. The point I guess I'm making is that this was a way to really get public opinion worked up fast and to have a sense of outrage about the other religion being immoral or perverse or something like that. And an interesting overlap between the discussion of difference in Islam is that in talking with friends of mine in Sydney who are Sunni, their typical complaint about the Shia relates to multiple marriage and temporary marriage. So maybe we could pass that over to Raihan for a comment. Indeed. Yeah, absolutely. That's another um, definitely argument used by Sunni polemicists. But the idea of temporary marriage is um, seen as problematic in Sunni Islam because um, you have two parties entering an agreement and you say this marriage would only last for three days or even three hours. So Sunni polemicists would argue that um, the muta marriage uh, legitimizes or legalizes prostitution. So that's the argument that um, is used by these polemicists. The, the Shia themselves argue that that's not the case. The, co the marriage is actually more complex. You have to get permission from the father and good luck getting permission from your father and telling your father that you're going to be married for only three days. So for the Shia um, the importance of allowing marriage of muta is to avoid people transgressing. Um, it is 
unavoidable for human beings to transgress and therefore allowing um, the muta marriage gives Muslims that option to actually engage in something that is more um, acceptable in the eyes of God. So you have different interpretations as well when it comes to that. But the muta marriage is definitely an issue that has been used uh, to delegitimize the Shia faith. Yes, but Raihan Ismail, last question on this. The leadership of world Shia is surely Iran and the mullahs who run the theocracy. And in Saudi Arabia, the home of Mecca and Medina, the holiest sites in Islam, the custodians are the dictatorial kings. Are you, th- are you saying their minds are focused on this medieval rule about who can marry when and how? Are they thinking more about who should be the rightful successor to Muhammad in the year 632? Or do they care more about who should be the regional superpower in the Middle East? That's an excellent question, James. Um, Obviously, many would argue that the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran Um, is founded upon political supremacy in the region. It's a geopolitical issue uh, where Iran is trying to demonstrate that it is better than Saudi Arabia. It wants to control the region and the Saudis are nervous about Iranian rise to power. And What's fascinating for me as a researcher while looking at, you know, the Sunni-Shia divide, particularly looking at Saudi-Iranian relations, is the fact that in the 1950s and 1960s, Iran and Saudi Arabia were quite close. They were quite concerned with Arab nationalism. So the Saudis cooperated with the Shah of Iran to crush the socialist revolution in Yemen in the 1960s because they were concerned with um, Gamal Abdel Nasser's uh, pan-Arabist ambitions. And here you have Sunnis and Shia working together to defeat a Sunni leader, Gamal Abdel Nasser is a Sunni, in Yemen in support of uh, a Shia leader in Yemen because they had the Zaidi imamate in Yemen. I think relations deteriorated following the Iranian revolution, um, 1979, when Khomeini came to power. Khomeini obviously denounced the Saudi ruling family, argued that they were not Islamic, they were not capable of maintaining their position as the custodians of the two holy sites, questioned their religious credibility. And from then on, the Saudis were always nervous about the Iranians. And the Iranians were quite vocal. They really tried to export the Iranian revolutions to other parts of the Arab world. But going back um, 50 years ago um, or 60 years ago, you know, the Iranians and the Saudis actually had good relations. The desire in God forbid. We're with Dr. Raihan Ismail, Hugh Myers and Dr. Meredith Bergman. It was only a few months ago that we saw violence and riots and civil unrest once again in Northern Ireland, this time stirred by Brexit. The riots were in part due to British loyalists' concern that Brexit would put Northern Ireland at risk as part of the United Kingdom. 
But the violence also has a sectarian underpinning, and Professor Duncan Morrow is from the University of Ulster and is the head of the Northern Ireland Community Council. He spent a decade building peace in the area. He told RN's Andrew West from the Religion and Ethics Report how the riots are linked to the Protestant and Catholic tension. There's a strong connection between the divisions in Northern Ireland and the sectarian dimensions that we know about and allegiance to the border. When things change in terms of the balance of power between Britishness and Irishness in Northern Ireland, then there's always a risk that that will upset things right down to the very roots, if you like, right down to the ground. And that seems to be at least part of the process here. A good analogy is there is some kind of tectonic movement under the ground. That might be Brexit. And the consequence is that there's a lot of damage done on the surface. And I think to some degree, uh, although you could extend that analogy too far, that's what's happened here. Is it more than a coincidence that these riots, the latest riots, began on the Shankill Road, which is a very iconic road for Protestants in Belfast, and ended up close to Bombay Street, which is where the troubles seemed to begin about 50 years ago? Is there any symbolism in that? Of course, there is a kind of a symbolism, and I think one part of it, the riots that we saw, not only were on the Shankill Road, as you say, but were on what we now call the interface. And the interface is these permanent walls which divide almost purely Catholic from purely Protestant communities in Belfast still. And so locating it there is not accidental. And I think that that was also part of what was happening there was it wasn't just a protest against politics. It was being seen within a prism of kind of classical Northern Irish politics. And I think that was where a lot of people had a sense that this might go out of control. So, yes, there is symbolism there. It's not limited to the Shankar Road. There are other places where it has happened. But certainly those are the riots which took the attention precisely because of the things you're talking about. And we should just point out that there are still physical barriers in Belfast. You wouldn't have thought 30 years or 20 years after the Good Friday Agreement that there would still be physical barriers, but there are. In fact, there's almost as many as there used to be. And I suppose that goes to the heart of something which is quite important here, which is that, and this is the language I wouldn't always use, but there's a way of talking about peace where they talk about the negative peace, and that means that the violence stops. And in Northern Ireland, we made a lot of progress over the last 20 years comparatively. But there's another way of talking about peace, which is that you make new relationships. And I think that that has always been the more difficult part, and it's the more hidden part and doesn't get the attention. But when trouble starts again, that is the problem. And we didn't make much progress there. We still have people living in separated communities with physical barriers between them. Professor Duncan Morrow speaking there with RN's Andrew West for the Religion and Ethics Report in April last year. We'll put a link to the full conversation on our website. Well, Meredith Bergman, this Irish conflict, it's ended for all intents and purposes well. I mean, Northern Ireland is now at peace compared to where it was. What is the lesson from that? The the lesson from Ireland is that it, it is a political solution that has to happen. It is not a liturgical solution because... The problem is not really about differences between the religions at all. It's it's about it's about class and it's about tribe and it's about uh, equality of access 
to uh, the resources of, of government. And as soon as that was solved in uh, Northern Ireland, then everything else became a lot easier. Now, if you want to look at what happened in Australia to make the sort of Catholic-Protestant um, divide that was uh, never really violent but was quite uh, obvious in the 50s and 60s, what happened to make it really almost irrelevant now is I think the most important thing is that religiosity just declined in Australia. In 1966, uh, 88% of Australians said they had a religion. And by uh, 2016, only half, only half of Australians said that they were Christian. So the fact that Christianity in itself becomes less important, the young are less religious than the old, and in actual fact, men are less religious than women. And it's a much more multicultural society anyway. So the old white Anglo-Saxon Protestant suburbs where, you know, seriously, in, in Cheltenham, where I grew up, there wasn't anybody that wasn't white Anglo-Saxon and Protestant. And, and of course, that's going to create division if you don't grow up with people who are diverse. And yet, Dr. Raihan Ismail, what is it like for you living in Australia where we afford ourselves the luxury of giving ourselves political difference? Uh, namely, Ireland is shaped by politics, which is incidentally influenced by religion. But for the Muslim, it's all shaped by religion, incidentally shaped by politics. How does that make you feel? Yeah, it can be, you know, frustrating when you're listening to some some of the rhetoric. So Islam is treated as a monolith. The diversity within Islam is not discussed at all. The political aspects ignored. It can be quite uh, frustrating because you're trying to understand issues within the Middle East or in other parts of the Muslim world by looking at the socio-economic political factors um, in trying to understand why different groups contest political positions, why people you know, go to wars, for instance, and yet it is often simplified um, when you are looking at it in the context of Australia. I would say that the rhetoric has improved. Um, the rise of ISIS didn't help. Uh, Islam became a subject of scrutiny. Well, let me suggest to you the rise of ISIS did help. What happened in Iraq when an existential threat of foreign invaders entered their country? Some of them, Australian Sunni invaders, came in. The Iraqi Shiites and Iraqi Sunnis say we have more in common as Iraqis than we have indifference between ourselves because these Australian foreign fighters are coming in to make our life hell, along with Uzbeks and Chechens and all the others. Yeah, I think the rise of ISIS helped in Iraq, which is tragic and really sad when we think about it. Um, Iraqis realized that it was so important to promote cross-sectarian cooperation, to actually work together to defeat an extremist group, but not just against ISIS. You know, they're also fighting against Iranian uh, influence in Iraq. They're also dealing with foreign interventions in Iraq, not just uh, Iran, but also you know, Western powers, for example, you know, has contributed to the Sunni Shia cooperation. 
Um, well, Hugh Mackay, just to finish before we get to the quiz, if we were in Australia 150 years ago and I told you a conservative government, one aligned with the English establishment, was going to be led by a Catholic and even have a, you know, uh, its leadership ministers all Catholic, the treasurer and so on, what would you have said to that? You know, Tony Abbott, uh, Joe Hockey, all the others. I think that it, it is actually not anywhere near as unexpected as one might think. Australia changed fundamentally with the gold rushes where the demographic was transformed within 12 to 18 months. Vast numbers of people came both from the United Kingdom and North America. The colony of Victoria became one of the most prosperous places on earth. And what this allowed was for the Irish, who had come into money and prosperity quickly, to elect their own representatives to parliament. The most famous example is Charles Gavin Duffy, who was involved in Irish revolutionary politics and a vast sum of money was raised for him to come to Australia and to qualify as an MP. So movements were made to sponsor Catholic politicians with all this gold money, and that laid the foundation for Catholic political representation at a high level. And I certainly agree with what Meredith said previously that the solutions are never liturgical or abstract. They arise from the material possibility for more equal conditions to exist between people and then the religious wounds that can be healed. And Dr Raihan Ismail, here we were thinking all this time we, we had to worry about working out what God wanted. It's about what we wanted. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. And I think in the context of Islam, um, in the case of Sunnisia divide, there's so many elements that we have to look at and we have to disregard religious elements when we are discussing you know, some of these issues that we've looked at, political, social issues, cultural issues as well, that we have to take into consideration when trying to understand the divide between Sunnis and Shia. And, and Meredith Bergman, as you've traversed this extraordinary period of Australian history, do you see yourself as a witness to sectarianism or a participant in it? Well, I think I was a witness really in that, that period that I can remember from the 50s right through to now. You just see sectarianism in religion disappearing, um, well, the Catholic-Protestant divide disappearing as an issue simply because religion itself becomes less important as an issue. But, you know, I can still remember when um, there were no Catholics in a Tory government. Uh, you know, the, the Menzies government was a, pro a Protestant government. I can remember um, the first uh, Catholic cabinet minister being Philip Lynch in the 1960s. So we're still looking, it's quite a recent uh, change and the, I would still say that Catholic culture in Australia is a working class culture, much more so than uh, Protestant culture. 
and you certainly saw that when we interviewed people for our book um, on radicals in the 60s, when it was always the Catholics that talked about the culture that came out of their Catholicism and, and their families. So there is very much more a, a tradition of, you know, fight and struggle amongst the Catholics than there is amongst the Protestants. And, with, and the way that uh, played out in the Labor Party was that the Catholics got involved in the Labor Party. As I say, I was very, very much in the minority when I arrived in the Labor Party caucus in 1991. You know, there were seven of us. It was extraordinary. And I often thought that they were more upset about me being uh, an Anglican than about being a woman or a left winger. (laughs) And yet you came from the the noblest of breeding in terms of the radical cleric. Absolutely. Uh, my grandfather was a bishop and I have almost every male relation possible, uh, an Anglican minister of various stripes. So I, I certainly knew what I was talking about. But but not just an Anglican bishop, Bishop Bergman, a social activist. Yes, he was, he was very much, I suppose, what you'd call a Christian socialist. And possibly that was something that was objected to by the Catholics in the court. Yeah, that's right. A socialist and a Protestant. That's right, that's right. Well, if there's any more reason for division, uh, it'll surely come up next. Wits End, the God Forbid Quiz. Wits End. Yes, it's Wits End, the God forbid quiz. Raihan looks forward to the day when the only question dividing the Muslim Ummah will be this. Test your buzzer. Is it haram to use toothpaste while fasting? Yeah, is it haram? Is it forbidden to use toothpaste while fasting? I don't know. Uh, Hugh Myers, who curates and acquires rare books for the Australian Catholic University, this is what happened when you accidentally went to work on your day off. I just read a book for nothing! Oh, never mind. And iconic feminist Meredith Bergman, an early campaigner for childcare so women could work without kids. Meredith was herself president of the Legislative Council in New South Wales, which sounds like this. Test your buzzer. What was it all for? Okay, first question. Under Catholic canon law, someone someone who is divorced cannot remarry if their ex is still alive. Why was this rule front page news around the world about a month ago? I'll give you a clue. It relates to a marriage that was held at Westminster Cathedral. Oh, it was uh, Boris Johnson. Correct. He was able to exploit a loophole in Catholic canon law to marry his fiancée Carrie Simons in a secret ceremony. Uh, The 56-year-old married the 33-year-old Uh, A year after the birth of their son, Wilfred, it was the first wedding of a serving Prime Minister in nearly 200 years. Such was the secrecy, reports The Australian. Some guests only got a few hours' notice before the ceremony. You can imagine the competition for the bathroom to get ready for that wedding invite. Uh, But how did the twice-divorced PM get around Catholic canon law? Well, the Roman Catholic Church said his former two marriages weren't real Catholic marriages at all. Therefore, he's never been married. Next question. In 2006, a New South Wales senator read into Hansard criticism of a particular religion that had been made routinely in the media. 
he'd collected different newspaper articles and together they said a particular religion in Australia was responsible for the following, not respecting the law, setting up their own foreign-funded schools, forming crime gangs that rape women. He said this religion, their leaders, never took blame for what they did. In fact, they blamed discrimination against them as the reason. Uh, This religion even set set up secret military training camps in the Blue Mountains. Which religious group was the media referring to? I think I know the senator, but I think it was Islam, but but the senator would have been Bill Heffernan. Actually, it was Senator John Faulkner, and he was referring to Irish Catholics. (laughs) Yes, Labor Senator John Faulkner in 2006, he'd collated a bunch of media articles about Catholics in the 19th century Uh, He made the point that every characteristic ascribed to Muslim communities today had been used in precisely the same way against Irish Catholic Australians in the media in the uh, first half of the 20th century and the 19th century. Now, next question. Who is this man saying the word never? Have a listen. Never, 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 never. Who was that? Ian Paisley. Yes, well done, Meredith. For half a century, Ian Paisley, the leader of the Free Presbyterian Church of Ulster, which he founded, and leader of the Democratic Ulster Unionist Party, the dominant anti-Catholic and anti-Irish force in Northern Ireland. Margaret Thatcher had just signed the Anglo-Irish Agreement very early on in the peace process. That was the one that said Northern Ireland could reunify with the Southern Republic of Ireland, but only if a majority of Northern Irelanders supported it. Now, since that time, the extraordinary thing is that Ian Paisley ended up not only effectively consenting with that agreement, but in fact shared power himself with his arch enemy, Sinn Féin, Fenian Republican and according to some terrorist, Martin McGuinness, once peace came. They were first and deputy first minister of Northern Ireland together and formed an unlikely friendship as well. And I I kind of think that's a a nice way to end the program, wouldn't you say? Uh, Meredith Bergman, have you met Martin McGuinness? I know you've met Gerry Adams. (laughs) No, no, never met Martin McGuinness, but it is a nice way uh, to finish because it does show that anything's possible. It is. And just as sectarian divisions can overcome us quickly, they can also, by dint of human effort, be removed. Wouldn't you say, Dr. Raihan Ismail? Absolutely. And I think in the context of Islam, um, you've, we, we have witnessed uh, different groups coming together and working and cooperating um, in trying to bridge the divide, not just between Sunnis and Shia, but also between other religious um, you know, denominations within Islam. Uh, and final word to you, Hugh Myers. Absolutely. I, there's one interesting anecdote from Australian history which shows that spiritual tranquility is possible between persons even in the midst of very bitter sectarian rivalry. The example concerns 
two of the leading figures of the 19th century in Australia. The first is Bishop John Bede Polding, and he's the first Australian bishop. The second is Dr John Dunmore Lang, who was a Presbyterian minister, probably unfairly judged by history as being crazy, but he was a frenetic, active, litigious, fractious man who never stopped talking for decades of his entire life. As Bishop Polding lay dying on his deathbed, John Dunmore Lang went to visit him and the two men spent several hours speaking in private and for the rest of the day, John Dunmore Lang did not say a single word and it's the only time in his entire life that he was silent. So some sort of spiritual accord was affected between these two men who had been enemies for decades. Mm. The words spoken in the silence. <laughs> uh, Hugh Myers, thank you very much indeed for being on God Forbid. Great pleasure, thank you. Hugh Myers, an antiquarian, a bibliophile. He's currently acquiring uh, the same for the Library of the Australian Catholic University. And Dr. Raihan Ismail, it's, so, it's been so wonderful to have your expertise as well today. Thank you for having me, James. Dr. Raihana, Senior Lecturer at the Australian National University's Centre for Arab and Islamic, Islamic Studies, the author of Saudi Clerics and Shia Islam, her, her next title on the way soon, Rethinking Salafism. Uh, and Meredith Bergman, thank you for coming back on the show. Thank you, James. The Honourable Dr. Meredith Bergman, former academic, trade unionist, president of the New South Wales Legislative Council and author with Nadia Wheatley of Radicals remembering the 60s. And with that, we have reached the end of God Forbid. You can follow the podcast on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Email me at godforbid at abc.net.au. I'm James Carlton. Until next week, remember to be good. This has been God Forbid. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.